Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of One Vision. I'm Bradley Limer, the host this week, and I have the pleasure of talking to Caroline Hughes, co-founder and CEO of LifeTize, the world's most exciting Web3 consumer and finance platform. So, Caroline, for the benefit of our listeners, can you talk about your background and what you and your team are building at LifeTize? Thank you so much for having me and what a great introduction. I've got a lot to live up to if we're the, we are genuinely the most exciting Web3 consumer finance platform. So my background is actually I was a data and technology lawyer for a number of years and worked across everything from cutting edge technologies. So Formula One teams building really cool stuff through fashion and advertising. So very much always kind of at the, at the outskirts of where like, pure creativity was happening. And that was kind of my sweet spot. And with LifeTize, we've basically taken a lot of the creativity and tried to bring that into financial services. So moving away from transactions on a screen, which is really where we've got to with fintech, and really trying to make the whole experience of consumer finance a lot more fitting in with people's lifestyles and to feel a lot more immersive and a lot more real. Like, so it's really, really embedded in their real lives. So with LifeTize, we are building a platform where you effectively get to play out different life scenarios. And then we show you how to finance it. And that's with a mix of traditional finance or TradFi and decentralized finance or DeFi and then NFTs as well. Okay, well, let's let's get into that a little bit, because when when you and I first met, it was on a panel <clears throat> for Fintech Talents uh, North America. We were talking about the metaverse and fintech and all of the things. And something you said that was really interesting, it's like fintech really has moved us beyond the transaction, hasn't it, the last 10, 15 years? You know, it, it, it was very much a ledger sort of back and forth relationship with financial institutions and all financial relationships. And now, you know, we're leveraging that data for so much more. So... Let's talk about how then the LifeTize works. You know, it's described on your site as a virtual world where people can plan their lives and visualize how to afford major goals, as well as, and I like this part, a true game of life where you play decisions virtually before you commit in real life. So I'm envisioning, you know, like the life game, right? And, and, and you're going around that wheel and you have like these things that you land on, but, but here you have choices and you can actually sort of model that out. Uh, so. What's what's that experience like? You know, what what's it like jumping into LifeTize, and what are some of those experiences that people will get as a user? So it is exactly that. So whenever we talk about our inspiration, it was always a mix of the game of life and that kind of choose your own adventure. So you know, you get different cards get dealt to you in life, but at the same time, you have those options. And what we found with modern life is that the number of options we have and the complexity has got so much greater, which brings a lot of opportunity, but also brings absolute choice blindness and too much complexity and people get stuck. And so what we've tried to do with LifeTize, and we call it the FinTech metaverse. So it, you're right, it's this virtual world where you can model if what you want to happen over the next one, five, 10 years, however far into the future you want to go. And that can be 
massive life events like starting a family or buying a home or it can be smaller ones like how do I fund my next vacation or I want I need to buy a new laptop for college so it's that mix of everyday sort of slightly bigger ticket purchases and then the real massive things in life that you're working towards and so as a user you typically come onto the platform in pursuit of a single goal to start with right something that's really important to you so it might be that you're getting married or you might want to start saving for a down payment on an apartment and so we pull you in on one of those goals that has really strong emotional and motivational pull for you and then we show you we calculate your affordability so we'll pull in open banking data to get a good understanding of your finances and now we're about to start working with a partner on the the crypto side so the equivalent of crypto open banking to be able to see what crypto assets you're holding where you might have certain liquidity locked up in DeFi protocols and so we have this holistic view of your finances but then at the same time, you're modeling exactly what you want to achieve. So that specific goal down to if you're if it's an apartment down to here's how many bedrooms I want. Here's what location I want to be able to buy in. And we visualize all of that for you. So we have things like interactive maps that show you affordability of locations and you can play with all of the different variables. So all of a sudden, if a location is too expensive, you can go drop down a bedroom. Or if a location is actually looking more affordable, you dial it up and you say, okay, I'll take three bedrooms instead of two. And you start to get a real sense of what you as a user value, but also what you can afford. And then we visualize all of that for you in the sense of as you're creating these goals, whatever apartment, whatever house you're trying to buy, you'll see a virtual representation of that in your metaverse world. So it's all about connecting the user to the things that they are trying to achieve, but then at the same time, breaking down that affordability and also showing them each of the steps in the process to actually get there. Now that sounds like I want to like start playing around with it right now. I got decisions <laughs> to make. So, so when I, when I, when I think about, you know, the, 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 what you're building part and the type of visualization that you're doing, you're allowing sort of this user to have a journey through their financial life and think about not just how to achieve those goals, but to really look at modeling of, okay, first I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And then this is the ramification of that and et cetera. And it's, it's so much more than, you know, those seven sort of risk questions when you start to invest, you know, that they're required to ask us, you know, it's like, okay, well, how risk averse are you and all this stuff? And it's like, no, that's not how life works. And so I, I see this from sort of the transactional banking you know, that we do every day to how we're saving and spending and then how we're thinking about the future. So I, I love this idea. So so getting into it, though, so the, a metaverse, there's lots of metaverses. And, you know, Zuckerberg would like you to think there's only one. Uh, but but his company, of course, you know, they, they changed the name to Meta. They have been a very much Web2 platform. In fact, they really personify Web2. Uh, but they've dumped a lot of money into this. And we just found out that they lost $2.8 billion this quarter because it's not panning out so far. Um, there's seven or eight big, you know, metaverses, Decentraland and all these others. And it's not going to be a closed world. It's not going to be something that Zuck and anybody is going to control. And that's what's so exciting about all these Web3 components. And it goes way beyond crypto and assets and crypto as, you know, transactional capabilities. It's so much more than that. 
Can we talk about, you know, the, the virtual spaces? First of all, from what I understand, you don't necessarily require a headset to use live ties. Is that right? No, we don't believe necessarily at that. It's a step too far for most consumers, particularly at the stage that we're at. You know, if we're thinking that, you know, we are, we are something of a web 2.5 company, you know, we use a lot of the fam familiarity, um, in terms of UI, UX that people are used to from web two. And then we allow them tra to transition into web three in terms of connecting them to blockchain protocols in the back end, right? That's how we come about this. And what's been interesting, actually, if I look at kind of the metaverse spaces is a, I don't believe that everyone's going to put on a headset. I think most metaverses, and I don't know if you agree, are going to just still be accessed through standard screens in the way that we do. And what we've really seen so far in the metaverses that have been built and have got some level of traction and um, are kind of out there is they really sit at the intersection of games and commerce and social. If we kind of think about that kind of the triad that we have and the easiest ones for people to envisage are those that come from games worlds. So the sandbox, Decentraland, and then some which are much more just sort of pure games. So some people talk about Axie Infinity, the blockchain game as being a metaverse. Um, and it's something I think that we're most comfortable with imagining because those immersive game type worlds make us believe that we're stepping into something and we we're used to playing in those worlds and it feels like just a, a standard extension of that but where it starts to become more interesting is where you have worlds which are built for more than just entertainment or more than just games and i think we're starting to see a few more of those so we have the likes of blocktopia which is the 21 story uh, metaverse tower that's being built. And it's being built with a kind of triple A game-like render, but it's designed for you to actually go and hang out and be there and attend events and you know possibly even work and do all of these things. And I think this is really where we're gonna start to see almost like the next gen of metaverse come through in terms of how people want to interact. And I think one of the biggest challenges that all of these metaverses have, and it's not something that we have as, at Lifetize because for us, the metaverse is almost an output of everything that you model. So you are coming through a user journey and having the metaverse almost at the end, whereas the metaverses that exist right now, to become a destination, there has to be something really compelling for you to do there. And what we've kind of seen is in the early stages of a metaverse, there's not a lot necessarily happening or it's very sporadic. So we're not getting people coming and spending lots of time in them because there simply isn't enough there to keep you entertained or to keep you kind of captive. Yeah, I think about, you know, watching uh, our sons play Minecraft and Roblox and how things have evolved. And, you know, growing up as a gamer, you know, for, for decades playing games, um, it's interesting how that model has changed as well, because it came from, you know, you'd, we, you would have standalone titles that you would work through in single player and then it converted to multiplayer. And then it slowly began to be like a series of unlocks and challenges and what have you, which eventually became monetized. And that's the part that's really interesting in the connection between sort of the gaming platform and that world and how, you know, something as simple as 
well, I'm not going to say it's simple. It was, it was amazing when it came out, but the unreal engine and what it powers, you know, I, I um, Arun is working with Bulliverse and they're, I think using unreal or, or other pieces of it. And so much of the new technology is that original build, you know, having moved through the decades, uh, to power a lot of the stuff and virtual worlds to your point, you know, second life and every other sort of community that has ever been built has been something that has been so iterative and it's been a really long march. You know, this is nothing new, but what we can do in these things and how we can transact and how we can interact and communicate and have meaningful transactions occur through these platforms is really, really significant. Um, switching into that then, you know, so, so blockchain and crypto related startups this past year, uh, well, to say 2021 have garnered $25 billion in backing. That was up 700% you know, from the year before there were more than 1200 deals. There were 1500 or sorry, $15 billion in mega rounds across 59 deals and new 40 new unicorns just in the last year. So yeah, things have slowed down, but we've had some amazing quarters of web three investment. And we had a lot of, you know, chatter this past year and a lot of pain when crypto assets, you know, cratered, uh, but the train is not stopping. You know, we, we see, new marketplaces and new infrastructure players and new ways to interact in these new spaces and transact in these new spaces. That's not changing. It's going to be more global. It's going to be, you know, multiple metaverses. It's going to be, you know, web two fighted web three, and, and eventually they'll probably call it web four and companies like yours are going to be part of that. Um, you know, what do you, what do you make about all the, the investment progress that has been made and, and what's been happening this past year? Can you talk about some of, of what you're seeing in the venture community? Yeah, it has been, I mean, 2021, I would say, you know, was the year when crypto investment went pretty much mainstream, right? You had, you know, from the more traditional VCs that suddenly spun off funds, you know, you had people leaving some of the big VC funds just to set up, you know, specific web three funds, all of a sudden, it kind of went from being, you know, pockets of people to suddenly being pretty much front page news across all of the major kind of uh, industry titles. But interestingly, as well, just within even if I think about fintech, the number of people that left you know, big fintech companies to either set up their own crypto web three company or to join fast growing crypto companies was enormous. And suddenly you had this kind of rush of talent moving and it's really moving to where the energy was. Because one thing I had noticed kind of coming from where fintech has become quite institutional over time as it's matured. As you would expect, you know, the, the larger fintechs have quite naturally grown into big global players, huge um, focus on making sure that they have all of their compliance ducks in a row and all of this stuff. But it does mean that fintechs stopped being quite as innovative and became far more institutional. And so I think what we've been seeing on the Web3 side is that a lot of innovation and a lot of experimentation has been happening in that space, partly because the regulatory landscape is different, but partly as well, I think, because people don't feel as constrained because you're right, it's a global market. So the starting point is different. You're able to tap into markets that if you're in a traditional fintech or other space, you are quite limited 
you're starting out with a local market and you're starting out with a customer base that is I, you know, very, very specific. What we're finding in the Web3 space is you can instantly be global and you're actually going in and trying to identify which which of those markets that actually are best for you. So you're almost doing it the opposite way around. You know, the market calls you and the community calls you in Web3. And so your go-to-market strategy from the very beginning is a very global one. And I think that's incredibly exciting for a lot of these companies coming through. And I think it's incredibly exciting for the VCs. And what's been very interesting, watching it kind of play out from the end of the bull run coming through now into the start of this bear market is last year you had a lot of the same type of projects, right? So I have, um, you know, in my network, I have a lot of people who work for layer one blockchain companies and they were basically saying we are seeing hundreds of NFT marketplaces. We're seeing hundreds. So a lot of the same types of projects were just being repeated all over the world. And now what we're starting to see is that two things. We're starting to see that there are fewer of the same type of projects coming. So you're actually starting to see the emergence of more innovative, unique things coming through. But also you are actually starting to see those projects that have a genuine business model behind them. So in the, you know, in the heat of the bull run, I had a lot of investors saying, we see a ton of projects and very, very few businesses. And that all works out at a time when all tokens are rising. But if we get, like you say, a cratering, then all of a sudden you're suddenly left with, okay, but which are the business models that actually work? What do we have beyond hype? What do we have in terms of tokenomics models that actually can survive both the up and the downside? And I think that's what Certainly when we're talking to VCs now, what really interests them about what we're doing is that we have this dual token plus fiat revenue model. So we're effectively playing the best of both worlds. I really like uh, a lot of things you're just talking about. I, you know, when I think about fintech and I think about sort of where a lot of it came from, I, I do these talks where I talk about the critical year 2007 with the launch of M-Pesa, you know, which taught us that microloans, microfinance works at scale. You, you look at things like the launch of the iPhone, which eventually changed the way that we really interact with almost all brands. You talk about the beginning of PSD1 and all of the regulations and all of the changes that ended up really into open banking. You talk about the first Finnovate that happened in New York that year, and it was really like, hey, you know, there's a thing that eventually became fintech. And you look at the Great Recession. So we're in that kind of moment with Web3 and with fintech, because I think both sort of models institutionalized fintech and sort of, you know, on its own fintech, along with all of these different Web3 pieces, are having that moment where they're having to prove themselves. And this is where things that are being built become the most interesting. So I, I think the next 10 to 15 years is going to be even more fascinating than the last 10 to 15 because the way we interact and communicate and all the other things we talked about. Uh, so it's, it's really, it's an, it's an amazing time. And it's so exciting to like talk to somebody in this space that isn't a, a, a crypto bro. Uh, and so along those lines, can you talk a little bit about CEO and what you're trying to achieve with funding more women led ventures? Talk about that. 
Yeah, so I'm actually part of a number of communities that are either promoting more women in Web3 or just generally promoting more funding getting into the hands of women-led ventures. So it may not be a surprise to people listening to know that um, roughly 2 to 3% of venture capital goes to businesses led by women. Right. It's, and that number hasn't changed. And actually this year we're going backwards a little bit, which is nice. Um, and so I spend what little time I have outside of running lifetimes. I actually spend mentoring women who are leading the next generation of businesses coming through. So CEO is a very interesting model. So it's global. It's in started off in Canada. It's in the US. It's in New Zealand. It's in Australia. It's in the UK and it's growing. And they have a very, very differentiated way of funding. So instead of it being a VC model or any other kind of standard investment model, instead they call it radical generosity. And what you do, you're, you are called an activator and you effectively gift money to this pot. And then this pot of funding gets split between ventures that you vote for. And those ventures have to be at least 50% owned um, by a woman or non-binary person. And so it creates this community where, and radical generosity, I think is such a great phrase to describe it because the expectation of the return on investment that you get is very different, right? You're literally putting money in for the greater good because you want to see these ventures succeed. You're not putting the money in to see an individual return. You're not a fund that needs two of its winners to return the whole fund in the same way a VC does. And the money that you put into the pot creates this perpetual fund. So it's loaned out to the selected ventures at a 0% loan over five years. So they pay it back. And then that goes to fund the next batch of businesses and the next batch of businesses. So the idea is to create kind of like this $1 billion perpetual fund that is then just there to continuously fund the new generation of women coming through. So yeah, it's super exciting. And then I'm part of another couple of um, great organizations. And what has been brilliant actually about Web3 is, again, speaking of kind of that, that energy and community, is we are seeing those women who've kind of paved the way, you know, have been in blockchain since 2013, 2014, 2015 and beyond, have been through various bull and bear runs and have risen to positions of leadership. Now they're really setting up communities to bring more women in and to make sure that they have opportunities for career progression, that they have opportunities for funding. So I'm part of a co cohort in the 200 billion club, which is again, to get more um, venture capital into the hands of women led businesses. I'm part of an organization called the bigger pie, which is a community to um, help more women build leaders. And they, they run programs. So they run programs like zero to CTO or zero to CMO to actually create these career pathways for women in Web3. And they work closely with kind of big blockchain companies to make sure that that funding and that support and those career opportunities exist. So they are absolutely fantastic. And they're mainly run by people just out of the sheer passion for it. Well, I think um, anything that we can do to raise that two to three percent level of funding toward um, 
sort of non-white male uh, founders is is something that we've have, <laughs> have had a lot of support of uh, over the years, and certainly we highlighted a lot of these companies in the book. The model needs to change. I, I think we kind of take on venture and technology uh, in general in the way that funding is happening. So I, I meant to ask, uh, what's the name about Life Ties? Like, what's the ties part of that? Because I I I looked at that and I keep on like I, I want to like mispronounce it as LifeSide or something, but it's Life Ties, and it actually makes me pause when I say it. So. So tell me a little bit about that really quick. Yeah, so it basically came about two things, like what domain name could we get at the time, <laughs> okay. right? That started with life. But also we wanted it to be about the ties that you have with your life, right? Okay. How does money tie into your life? So it was always to do with this idea that money should not be this abstract thing. Money really is just what enables you to do the things that you want to do in life. So the ties bit came down to, uh, but also it's like monetize yeah, yeah. and all of these words. And we just kind of created that portmanteau, but we do appreciate for uh, North Americans looking at it. We really should have put a Z in uh. there because like, <laughs> so I think as we go global, we're going to need, we've got, we've got the dot com so, that has so the now it makes so much there. more sense. Um, <laughs> just adding the Z, of course. <laughs> I remember fighting with the editors because they were, of course, using, you know, uh, British English, which is proper English, uh, and converting all Z's to S's and not using the Oxford comma and all sorts of things. Um, all right. So, so that, that, that mystery has been solved and that makes a lot of sense. And I like the ties part because it, although it could have been T-I-E-S, I guess, but then that would have been even harder to pronounce for people probably. <laughs> Um, let's let's go into you know Web three in general. So the the term Web three was coined in 2014 by Gavin Wood. I'm sure there's a few of our listeners who don't know that whole history. He was one of the co-founders of the cryptocurrency Ethereum, uh, which a lot of everything is being built upon now. And as he was laying out the vision of, of the future of the internet, he said, "Okay, so Web three is going to be this truly decentralized and more democratic version of the current internet." That's you know just what they said about the existing internet. Uh, but one that is not dominated by a handful of large social technology and commerce platforms and all of the infrastructure that we have today. So imagine, you know, the web before and, and a lot of our listeners and a lot of people we inter interact with probably don't remember the early days of the Internet. And it really sucked. And it was really like, you know, without images and without it was just it was it was different, but it was really exciting and it was very open and it was very much open standards and you could build upon anything. And then all this happened and then our data kind of got turned against us and all these other pieces of you know bad things started to be monetized on top of things that we in many cases didn't even know about um, when you think about web 3 and you think about web 2 and, and kind of what we have today and where we're headed um what what gets you really excited <clears throat> about where things are headed and when when you think about Web 2 and Web 3 in that transition, you talk about how you guys are being a Web 2.5 sort of bridge and the lack of headsets for the common sort of internet user and what have you. Is there more room for that, that transition between where we are and where we're headed? And why don't more people think about it that way? Like, like we're helping sort of move into a more decentralized, more sort of democratic web. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I think about so what are the drivers of Web3 for me, if I think about it at a very high level, it is that ability to be much more inclusive. So I always think about Web2, the, the main characteristic for me of Web2 is who are the gatekeepers? 
you know, who has created walled gardens, who is controlling that flow of data, who's controlling the, the access. And when we think about Web3 and kind of the ideology behind Web3, it is that openness. It is that ability for anyone, anywhere to be able to connect, access, join, build, collaborate, right? It is that much more um, collaborative rather than the, the kind of one-way stream that we have in Web2, which is somebody creates something, we consume it, they make their money off the back of that, right? Web3 the promise of Web3 is that it allows many, many more people to participate in the creation and the monetization. Now, what's going to be interesting is can we as humans actually live up to the promise of that or will we find that we just create new gatekeepers? That I think is the the, the friction that we're going to have and that's the kind of the upcoming battle and it's I guess if you look at um, what Zuckerberg is trying to do with Meta, that it that kind of encapsulates a little bit of the battle, right? Because it's can a Web two behemoth ever properly deliver the promise of Web three, and are they even trying to, or are they just trying to create a Web two walled garden that gives some of the experience of what we're trying to get to with Metaverse and Web three? So my view on it is you kind of got the ideological side, which is, you know, fully decentralized, fully permissionless, anyone, anywhere, access, use, collaborate and build. And then you have certain industries like financial services and others where the regulatory environment quite rightly means that you can't necessarily just have something that is completely open because if it's completely open and completely permissionless at all stages, that does create risks where you have bad actors, right? And we've seen it, we've seen it in, in some of the, the things that have happened recently with some of the CFI platforms, right? From the consumer's perspective, they thought one thing was happening, you know, they pay their money in and they expect to get a return on that, but they have no sight of what is happening behind the scenes. They don't know if their money is being used on speculative, you know, on to be uh, uh, leveraged trading, et cetera. And so where I think we need to get to is the, uh, the stage that we're at to be able to bring mainstream consumers across from a consumer experience perspective, you do need some of that Web2 familiarity, right? The, I mean, I don't know how much you've kind of explored on the pure kind of Web3 DeFi side in particular in terms of uh, user interfaces and ability to connect your wallet and then actually to use it. But you really kind of need to have like a crypto MBA before you can even get started, right? They're not user friendly. They're, they're really, really hard to get your head around. And at every step in the process, certainly I do, I have that feeling of is this where I lose my money? <laughs> is this is this the point in time that I press the button and it all kind of evaporates? And so I think what we need to have as at least a stepping stone to Web3 is this kind of Web 2.5, where those of us who are good in the, the CX side of things, you know, creating good user interfaces, are able to kind of take customers on that journey so that they understand how to use some of these DeFi protocols and, and understand all of that. But they're doing it in a way that feels familiar and they feel confident and they feel safe 
and they know what they're doing. Because I think this is the disconnect that we've got right now. And so there needs to be that bridge. What I would like to see more of though, is the transparency on helping consumers understand what happens more on the Web3 side. You know, how do these DeFi protocols actually work? What is happening with my money? And I think if we can get that right, that's something we spend a lot of time on at LifeSize. If we can get that bit right so that people actually have a solid understanding, not from a technical perspective, but just where is my money going? What is happening to it? And what can I expect? Then I think we'll have done our job. Well, I think the, the history of, of banking is, you know, where did I lose my money? You know, where, how are they getting me? You know, how am I paying for what I'm yeah. getting? Uh, so that hasn't changed. Yeah. Uh, but I, I love this part of, of and I'm not, I'm not sure if it's your mission, but you, it's on your site <clears throat> where you say, we believe everyone should have the opportunity to be, to be financially secure and create a life that they love. And, you know, when I think about the components of Web3 and DeFi and the complement to broader financial inclusion, I mean, we have come a long way primarily because of fintech, you know, in large fintechs in, in East Asia and throughout, <clears throat> you know, other parts of the world where, you know, we had 2.5 billion people almost 15 years ago that were unbanked. And now we have about 1.6, 1.7 billion. And that's still a lot of people. There's still a lot of, of room for this, you know, sort of hug of inclusion to get people into a system. But it, I, I always like, I harp on this point, getting someone into the system is basically getting them into the path of extraction, you know, for existing players. And, you know, it, we, we, we wrote an awful lot about that. And we speak an awful lot about that because it's like, I'm passionate about this idea. It doesn't need to be that way, you know? And so if, to your point, we could really look at these new models as a way of sort of getting away from the darker side of extraction, the darker side of profit, and we can think about a better future where financial transactions in places like the metaverses really, you know, they, they can make banking better. But what I love about what you're building is that you're saying, you know what, I'm not going to get into this sort of speculative extractive side as I move my cat. Sorry. He's getting in my space. Hello, Galway. Um, and for our, our listeners, this is Galway the cat who often comes up during the podcast recordings. Um, but if we think about that inclusive future, you know, your, your point about can we just not create new gatekeepers? And that's what I think the entire ecosystem needs to think about and needs to focus on because what we talked about earlier, this is the time to build things that have value. This is the time to build things that are making things more inclusive, less extractive and something that we could build on. What brings you hope for that? You know, in, in what, what brings you hope in the, the community that you're a part of that we can move past that? I think what brings me the most hope is seeing the number of smart people who are genuinely working on each piece of that chain. You know, so from those who are working tirelessly to make crypto wallets easier for mainstream consumers to understand, use, secure, etc. to those that like us that are really helping people understand how this whole new financial system of crypto and DeFi actually fits into their life and and does it make sense for them, right? So it's it's definitely not saying to everybody, oh, you should use this, 
but it's about making it as easy to understand as possible. And let's be real for a moment. Many, many, many people do not understand the existing financial system, right? It has been designed that way. If it were easy Absolutely. for us to understand, none of us would have as much debt as we have, right? It just wouldn't, that wouldn't exist. You know, people wouldn't be paying over the odds for uh, their investments to be managed, right? AUM would not be such an attractive business model if people genuinely understood how all of it works. So there is work to be done on both the traditional side as well, but more energy is going into it on the Web3 side, right? Because it's new, because people feel that this is something that even as they come into the world, they have to get their own heads around it, right? You know, when I started our, you know, serious Web3 journey from pivoting the business so that it included DeFi and crypto as well as TradFi, you know, I really do feel that the last 12 months has been an enormous education. It's like, it's not even an MBA anymore. I'm calling it a PhD, right? I want, I want some sort of like proper certificate at the end of this because there is so much complexity in this world that we need to simplify. And I am encouraged by the type of people that I meet. So I tend not to be hanging out with the ones who are, uh, out there outwardly calling themselves degens, right? That is not my crowd. My crowd is the one that are really kind of looking at it in terms of systems thinking and structurally and saying, how do we not just repeat the same mistakes? How do we not just build the same kind of local maximas that we have in traditional financial services in fintech? And how do we actually make sure that we are building for different groups of people. So within my community, we have people who are building incredibly cool, like agri-ledger tech, you know, for farmers in different parts of the world to be able to successfully trade their crops at a profit and not just at what the gatekeeper market is determining at a specific point in time. And so there's all of these little uh, businesses that are making real inroads and kind of showing us how things can be done differently. And what I would love, and going back to the question on how do we kind of make it better, again, we need to make sure that they get some of the funding because we need to just make sure that the funding isn't going to the same type of people who are going to just create the same type of systems and the same type of companies with the same type of business model. I think it would be absolutely criminal if at the end of all of this process, we look and we say, oh, wow, we've just replicated pretty much everything that's gone before and we've just stuck a Web3 badge on it. When there is genuine opportunity to create things in an additive way and as you say, not an extractive way. And I don't think we're there yet. And I do think that a lot of the money that has kind of gone into big projects has in some cases replicated what's gone before but I am starting to see green shoots. And I actually think a bear market is where a lot of this real innovation happens because it's people who are building. They're going to build no matter what. They're going to build if they don't have the money. They're going to build, you know, regardless of what the market cycle looks like because they're building with a mission and a purpose behind it. I love that. And, you know, I, I want to have us talk to more people that are building these type of things. And so I, I offer more than encouragement. Uh, I, I offer the community uh, and it's growing. And I think that you guys are going to do well. I would love to see the components of what you're building 
in the process of everybody's financial decisions, uh, because I think we need to combat the business model that has been here for centuries. And yeah, the last 15 years have improved some things by making it more transparent, but I think there's so much more work to do. So Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, One Vision is about people that are making a difference in this industry and making banking better. We appreciate you sharing your perspective on, on what is a very fascinating start to a new branch of the financial services story with Web3. And I want to thank you all for listening. We will see you next week on another episode of One Vision.